we go. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the first Tuesday of the month, which means it's time for Straight Talk with Dr. Doug Lyle, where he answers your questions, but only if you send them in in advance. You see, whenever we have a guest who is a doctor, especially Dr. Doug Lyle, we get so many questions that we just unfortunately can't take your wonderful question from the chat. So if you want your question answered, there's a couple of ways. One, you could have a private session with Dr. Lyle. The information is below in what's called the show notes under the YouTube video. Or if you get on my mailing list at chefaj.com, once a week on Saturday and Sunday, we send you the lineup, we tell you who the guests are, and then you just email us back with your questions. And we have got some good ones today. And how are you, Dr. Lyle? Good, AJ. All is well. Great. Well, I listen to your podcast, Beat Your Genes, religiously. You have over 300 episodes, and some of them uh, more than once. And some of these questions, I don't think you've answered. So I'm very excited to hear your take on them. And I love it that I there's really of all the questions, there's like only one that has to even do with weight loss today. So yay for that. All right, good, good deal. We'll see what we got. All right. So the first question is from Molly. Hi, Dr. Lyle. What is the purpose of gossip and why is it so hard not to engage in it? I feel so bad when I participate in it because the person isn't there to defend themselves. Yet, just like hyperpalatable junk food, I'm drawn to it and I find it hard to resist. Do you have any advice on how to stop? And do women gossip more than men? <laughs> um, that's a, interesting. I I think uh, I think not. In other words, I think uh, I think men gossip just as much, but they just gossip about different things. The um, <clears throat> the gossip is actually a, a critical process of human social life. So, uh, what is it that people are doing? Is that they are? Um, let me let me back up for just a second. So. Uh, human beings are unique in, a, in that they actually plan and execute behavior over a, quite a long period of time. So you might think for a week about what it is that you're going to say to your boss, or you might even be thinking about it for a month. The, uh, no other creature is thinking long-term like this. So we actually have uh, a really a, amazing set of experiments showing the inner workings of the mind of the Bonobo chimp which is, you know, uh, just a, a kinder version of a chimpanzee. It's a different offshoot, but it's a similarly intelligent to the chimpanzee. And it's going to turn out that you can use hieroglyphics to actually communicate with them. And they can tell you what they're thinking, which is really cool. So they can learn how to hit this, hit this little, you know, point of the little pictures. And they can tell you, I'm mad at Susie. Okay. And I'm going to take Susie's, you know, uh, orange. Like they can tell you what they're going to do in advance. And then you say, go ahead and they go do it. So we can, we, you literally can talk to a chimpanzee. Uh, however, what you find when you do this is that they're only planning about 15 seconds in advance. They don't, and they can't think of two things at once. You say, well, after you take Susie's orange, go over and get the banana out of, out of the, uh, out of the water out of the cooler uh -uh, they'll forget they'll only do one of the two so they're about like a not too swift two-year-old is about what's going on inside the head of a bonobo chimp so um so now if you think about that 
that is an unbelievably strikingly different from some husband and wife who are or, or talking to 17 contractors thinking about building their house on on their acre in Colorado. It's like, oh my God, the planning is unbelievable. They're planning two or three years in advance about what things are going to look like and what, what's going to go down on the floors and then what's going to go behind the kitchen counter and what kind of faucet. It's like when you see the planning that human beings do in advance, it's absolutely unprecedented. There's nothing like it anywhere in nature. And so the internal life of a human involves long-term execution. And by long-term, we might mean, what are you going to say to your boss next week when you ask for a raise or you ask for time off? That is nothing like that remotely happens in any other brain on this earth other than a chimps, uh, excuse me, other than a human. <laughs> All right. So the... Um, so now you start thinking about, okay, well, if I'm going to execute this complex behavior and the most important features of this behavior are their exchanges with other people, uh, that, that's the most complicated thing that there is, is figuring out deals that we do with other people. That's how we're all surviving now. You're, you're making deals when you buy oranges from the store. Somebody grew those oranges and then somebody else picked those oranges and then somebody else shipped those oranges and somebody bought them as an intermediary and then somebody brokered those to uh, to the grocery store owner who then put them out there and then you bought them and then somebody else checked you out of the counter. It's like, holy smokes. And then somebody else drilled the oil that put the gas in your car that allowed you to go to the grocery store or Amazon's truck that delivered it to your door. When you start seeing how many people were involved, it was a bunch of agreements and trades. Well, those agreements and trades then, optimizing those agreements and trades are among the most important things that you do in your life. In other words, your brain is designed by nature to optimize those trades. And in order to optimize those trades, you got to know what kind of mood everybody's in. You got to know what they want. Oh, so-and-so just got a new girlfriend, did he? Well, in that case, he's probably going to be up for uh, buying some of my handmade jewelry. Well, in that case, maybe I'll go over there and talk to him and see if he wants one of these things that I just made because I got a few extra. In other words, the gossip winds up being unbelievably important when it comes to you figuring out wh what is the status of the supply and demand for different um, assets, uh, different values in the village. And so you need to know. Uh, so you think, oh, well, how is so-and-so's breaking up matter to me? Oh, it matters a great deal to you. If those two people are, they fought, you know what I mean? And you heard them fighting in the tent and she said, you're, you're a lousy lover. You know what I mean? Let's suppose somebody heard that. Well, then that means that that relationship, which superficially has looked like it was in pretty good shape, may not be in such good shape. And now you start, you, you start looking over at, that guy or girl and you're like this, you're like, well, in that case, <laughs> okay. So in that case, maybe I'll cool it off with Pete over here because I'm not that hot on him because it looks like Bill might start being available and I think he's better, okay? So how how are you going to know that these things are happening? you got to be talking to the marketplace and finding out what the status is of every individual in that in that place. So uh, notice, for example, if, if we want proof of how important this is, look at the gossip columns in, uh, you know, on, on, I don't know, National Enquirer or whatever it used to be at the grocery store. Now it's all online. 
But Brad, how many times were Brad and Angelina on the cover of the gossip ma magazines? How many times were they on the cover of uh, People magazine and things like this? The answer is they were plastered over that thing for five to 10 years. Why? Because they were the most attractive people in the village. They were, you know, now now they're 60 years old. So, you know, when you turn 60, nobody cares, apparently. <laughs> Try to get a date, you know, when you're 60. But the point is, is that Brad and Angelina were in their prime. And as a result, when they, the most attractive people in the village, if those two people break up, then suddenly the second most attractive people in the village now have a shot at dating the most attractive person in the village. And so if those people break up, then the third most attractive people in the village, you can think about this gal thinking, well, now, wait a second. If Brad just became available and then Mary is going to go for Brad because she's the second most attractive person in the village, then that means Bill over there, the second most attractive guy in the village, is going to be without a mate. Okay? And so he's now lost Mary and he's not going to get uh, Angelina, or maybe he'll try, but let's suppose we already know they have bad blood and they're not going back together. So now if my name is Sarah, now I'm heading for Bill and I'm going to dump Stu over here, who's the third most attractive. If the most attractive people in a village break up, it's dominoes through the village. It's going to disrupt every single relationship in that village. Whereas if the two least attractive people in the village break up, it will not disturb anybody's situation because nobody's looking to, to for the for the for the loose carbon atom that they're going to grab okay so this is precisely how this works so you can see it in the gossip dynamics of attracted people that everybody's interested in who the attracted people are sleeping with or not sleeping with or how good their sleeping is going and what seems to be the trajectory of that relationship that winds up being the most important gossip in the village. And that is, of course, shown dramatically by every soap opera digest, front cover, and everything else. So uh, don't think of gossip as uh, nasty, slimy, little backstabbing behavior. Think of it as absolutely essential behavior to, to give you the landscape of what the, uh, of what the actually status is of the major trading processes in the village. It's an informational highway is what it is. So uh, so everybody does it and anybody that says they don't do it is lying. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and of course, it's also true that if you get a particularly juicy piece of gossip, then, uh, then you wanna bring it to your village as fast as possible so that you get credit for being the one that was in the know, okay? If somebody beats you to reporting it, then you don't get any credit for that. So if you can be the first to tell your little group of five friends about some big deal that just went down with a couple of important people in the village, then you increase your status as someone who must be, must have ears and friends in high places. And so, that's why that is. So there's a tremendous amount of, in, of incentive for people to gossip. So gossip away and don't worry about it. Yeah, But it, you don't think it can be harmful or hurtful at times, especially if it's not true? Oh, it certainly can be. In other words, there's misinformation in, in the village, uh, certainly. And the, the thing is, is generally if you, if you pass on information 
that is not very well verified, and it turns out that it's wrong, then you're going to find out that that's true, and so will everybody else that you told. So therefore, it will reduce your credibility. Okay, so so it's it, it makes sense to how how many times have I said, listen, this is what I think happened, but I can't verify it. You know, I'm hearing this secondhand. Like, i.e., I'm just I want to get credit in case it's right, but I can't verify it. So don't don't make any huge decisions based on this. Is what that is saying. Okay, it's just it now, i.e., look to your own sources and see what it is that you can verify. But this could be important for you for some reason. Okay, so that's uh, it is not a bad thing. It's just a part of human nature. Okay, you said that they use hieroglyphics to train the bonobos. Yeah, effectively. In other words, if you if you draw little pictures of of what you know you know go get the water bottle out of a little out of a little trunk, uh, they can. They can tell you this is what I'm thinking and this is what I'm going to go do. That's amazing. Oh yes. I, I I mean I know that some apes or primates can sign language, but the yes. drawings that's amazing. Yes, I'm going to uh, now do something on camera. Yeah, that's mm. cool. <laughs> and here, this question I don't think you've answered, Doctor Lyle, at least on my show from Daniel. I often hear Dr. McDougall say that Dr. Roy Swank, Dr. Dennis Burkett, Dr. Walter Kempner, and Nathan Pritikin were his mentors, and it's on their shoulders he stands. I'm curious to know if you would be willing to share, if you have any mentors, who they were and how they inspired you. And do you think that in general, successful people have had mentors, and how do we find one? Well, that's interesting. It's an interesting question because it's interesting what we call a mentor. So... Uh, so Dr. McDougall, I, I'm not sure he had any mentors per se. In other words, no, nobody sat him down, uh, you know, at uh, in, in the famous Wall Street phrase, at the pinstripe knee. Uh, was, you can imagine a little would-be CEO in 1950, and his dad is uh, wealthy, and he has, has wears a pinstripe suit, and the little kid sits down, you know, when dad comes home, and then the dad explains to him how you manage office politics. Okay, that's the, the phrase uh, you you learn at your daddy's pinstripe knee. Uh, John, I don't think John McDougall had anybody like that. But what he's talking about is that he read their work and it educated him. In other words, so his thinking is standing on the shoulder of other men who uh, who did outstanding work. That's that's what he's saying, and that is certainly true for me. That's true. Of anybody, if you're a neurosurgeon, uh, you are standing on the shoulders of everybody that made contributions in neurosurgery for the last 150 years. So we're all, you know, uh, none of us stands alone uh, uh, in any way. So Colin Campbell may have been among the first people to, uh, maybe the first person to ever systematically explore the influence of of animal proteins on cancer uh, in a laboratory. Uh, however, the techniques by which you would do that, and even the knowledge that there's such a thing as protein, uh, and the ability to understand that there's chemical configuration differences between pro uh, plant plant protein and animal protein, these are not things that Colin discovered. So his thinking was standing on the shoulders of other people. So complex knowledge is a collaborative uh, cultural process uh, by which people publish. They verify, they argue, somebody tries to get famous by proving you wrong, 
you know, this is uh, this is why it is that we are society is best served by clean science that is not infiltrated or influenced by industry. And unfortunately, there's very little of that left. So uh, I was talking about this with Colin 10 years ago and we were discussing it and I uh, and he was shaking his head sadly he says, you know, we really had a good thing going there for a while. And the answer is yes, we did. If, if we were to go back, you know, when Colin was a young man, science was much more pure. And so you were just out there trying to figure out the truth. Now science is deeply corrupted uh, and you can't, there is good science being done, but it's in the middle of an absolutely uh, industry and government influenced mess. So it's very difficult to tell what's true. And uh, at this point, John says, it's hard to read uh, a medical article and actually have any confidence at all in its findings. So that's too bad, but that's not kind of relevant to this question. The question is, what, who, who do I stand on? Well, I stand on, uh, you know, the, the entire history of psychology. And so uh, we probably look uh, to our to our recent people that influenced us uh, very significantly in our careers more than others. And so for me, those people would be uh, uh, John Tubey and Lita Cosmides, the, the brilliant husband and wife pair who in the 1980s gave birth conceptually to the concept of evolutionary psychology. Uh, Charles Darwin was the first evolutionary psychologist, uh, very, very clearly was an evolutionary psychologist. Uh, he was the only one. And in fact, he then his thinking was forgotten for more than 100 years. In other words, he was, uh, his thinking basically became out of fashion and Freud's thinking and Ivan Pavlov, the derivative thinking of Ivan Pavlov uh, in learning theory eclipsed Darwin. So the, the field of psychology went away from Darwinian thinking towards two different tracks which absolutely dominated all thinking in psychology and academic psychology and in clinical psychology for the next hundred years. And that would be Freudian thinking or psychodynamic thinking and learning theory thinking, uh, i.e. human beings or imitation of learning machines. Those two conceptualizations turn out to be almost entirely wrong. And, uh, and so it, I, I did not know this. So I, I'm going through school um, and through my PhD program, dutifully learning, you, you can do good science and not have the right theory. So there's a lot of good science that has been done in the last hundred years in psychology, uh, collections of little disparate facts from, uh, you can know a lot about nutrition and not understand the importance of animal protein and pathology. You just keep studying things like what are the antioxidants inside of strawberries versus blueberries and you just keep collecting facts. And that is precisely what psychology was doing. So in the 1980s, uh, when I was in school, I was just reading the people and learning from the people and taking tests on their work that were collecting these little disparate facts, but there was no great theory. The two great theories uh, that were sort of dominating the show out there and the, and the either were learning theory and psychodynamic theory. Psychodynamic theory did not have high regard in academic psychology, but it dominated clinical psychology. In other words, when clinicians would go to school, forget everything that they learned in school because they didn't consider it useful. And then they would go and start to do psychodynamic therapy in their, in their practice. That's what you said again. So 
that's uh, that's how it worked. It wasn't until the 1980s that there was a resurrection of Darwin's thought, and that came through big time major league world class thinkers in evolutionary biology. So psychology was actually rescued as a science uh, by the biologists. So the biologists, uh, most specifically William Hamilton, and then uh, Robert Trivers and Richard Dawkins were three huge figures in helping us understand that the only way to understand human psychology was you're gonna understand it through the fact that they are, that the whole organism is designed to reproduce DNA. So, uh, and on that basis, uh, at reading their writings and knowing those people, um, John Chibi and Lita Cosme is a brilliant pair of people coming out of Harvard University uh, in psychology, uh, Lita and then John Chibi, her husband, was an anthropologist. Those two people understood that the entire field of psychology was on the wrong track. And so they, they literally figured that out. And then they gave birth to the evolutionary psychology. And early in 1992 was the publication of The Adapted Mind. They were young people when they wrote this thing. Uh, and, and they put this anthology together. I found out about them right about that time, right when that came out. And so that, that rescued my life from wandering in the forest uh, around like, like all my colleagues and everybody else and gave me a compass that headed right down the middle of the truth. Uh, clinically, there has been nobody. In other words, there, there hasn't been an evolutionary psychologist on Earth before 1990 because evolutionary psychology didn't exist. Okay? So just as I'm coming out of my PhD program, I'm finding out about evolutionary psychology and I'm seeing it's searing white-hot laser accuracy. And, um, and now I start to read. And so one of the people that helped me a great deal in my thinking was uh, Dr. David Buss. Uh, he was one of the young Turks, uh, one of the good friends of uh, Lita Cosmides. Uh, he was a young professor at Harvard when he ran into them as students. And he said, oh, he found out that these two hotshot students were very interested in evolutionary psychology. So he went and knocked on Lita Cosmides' door and he introduced himself and they started to talk. And he says, it instantly turned into an argument. <laughs> Because <laughs> Lita is, you know, 10 IQ points smarter than anybody else on earth. And so she, she's a grad student and David Buss figures that he's a young hotshot who has already got his thinking pretty advanced in evolutionary psychology because he had caught the same wind. And pretty soon Lita is crossing him up, correcting him. <laughs> I can, I ha having spent five hours with Lita Cosmides, I am not surprised that this went down exactly the way he's telling it. And he goes, so there wasn't really a discussion. It was really an argument. He goes, something that continues to this day, as he writes about it 30 years later. So David Buss has gone on to be, I think, the most prolific evolutionary psychologist in history. In other words, that man has published more truth about more data than in, in psychology than any human being who's ever lived. Whereas he has conducted more studies. Uh, Lydia Cosmides hasn't conducted that many studies. She's like a brilliant physicist who thinks from a very, very high plane theoretically. So when she publishes, uh, she publishes a crown jewel of truth and that it, it has its tentacles all over the place. David Buss is more like a, uh, Lady Cosmides is like a person who only builds a house once every five years 
Uh, you know, she's the architect of the thing and it's gorgeous. David Best is like a guy that builds, builds, uh, builds, uh, uh, what do you call it? Tracks all over the United States. <laughs> like he's built, he's built 40,000 houses. Okay. That's what he does. And so David Best was enormously useful to, to people like myself who wanted all of the little details of how the facts now fit together. So he went out and got them. And now I understand man, woman dynamics. Uh, in a way that I wouldn't, you know, you would only use your intuition. But David Best went out there and put nails in the wall, uh, did a 10-year study all over the world of survey research. And you can read about that and what he discovered in a book called The Evolution of Desire, which is now one of the great classics in evolutionary psychology. So David Buss, Lita Cosmides, John Tooby, who's a very sweet guy, very quiet, equally brilliant to his wife, but can barely get in a word in edgewise. It's like AJ and Charles. <laughs> hey, you've never seen us when we're alone. He's actually more chatty. <laughs> it's very similar to AJ and Charles, I'm that's telling you. Funny. But anyway, it's uh that that's who it is. And I'm trying to think who else. I mean there there have been many other people that I'm I'm gonna leave out here, but when it when the when it comes to mind to me, it was the, uh, I learned about evolutionary psychology. I learned it. I didn't even know that it existed when I read The Selfish Gene by Dawkins. And uh, The Selfish Gene actually was, was a, was like a freight train running over everything that I'd learned as a PhD student. And uh, so then I went looking for who had connected these dots that were very obviously wanting to be connected because Dawkins is not a psychologist. He's an evolutionary biologist, but he could very clearly see uh, he was resurrecting Darwinian thought, uh, you know, hundred years later and Tubi and Cosmides had done that. And so I found out about them very quickly. And then, uh, and then, and then the rest is my life story. So since uh, it would have been January, it would have been descent uh, about January of 1990 is when I read the selfish chain. And uh, so for, for the last, 33 years, um, I feel like the whole thing has been a sprint trying to get to the truth as fast as I could. And those people have been immensely helpful. Would you recommend any of the works of the three people you mentioned for those that are interested in what you're interested in? No, no, I wouldn't. Uh, uh, the, the adapted mind is way, way difficult. It's hard for me to read it. Okay. So the, um, maybe, uh, the selfish gene is very hard. I, I was so excited about it. As a young man, I came home and told my parents. And I was all excited. And my mom started to read it. She goes, Doug, this is really hard. <laughs> well, when you're a young, a young scientist and you're absolutely ablaze trying to figure things out and you feel like somebody knows, I was willing to uh, grind my way through the selfish gene and get out a dictionary and learn a little bit of biology in order to read it. I would say that the most readable books in the field uh, are... Uh, a beautiful work was done at, at Lita Cosmides' Pinstripe Me, the book, The Moral Animal, was written by Robert Wright. So uh, she helped Robert Wright a lot uh, in e editing and thinking through his thinking and explaining the facts of life to him. And he, he was on this early. I think 1993, The Moral Animal was written. He is a science writer. Um, you know, New York Times kind of a guy or nature, what, what, you know, these big science magazine, he was very, very capable writer. And Robert Wright wrote a masterpiece. Um, there was another, uh, 
Another masterpiece was written uh, that tells us the story of consumer behavior, personality, and evolutionary psychology. Very readable. Uh, Jeffrey Miller's book called Spent, written about 10 years ago. Really good. Uh, really, that that's the most fun read. Robert Wright is much deeper and doing a beautiful, comprehensive uh, display of evolutionary psychology. That book was written 30 years ago, and I have to tell you, it's a lot like reading the McDougall plan from, from 40 years ago. You read the McDougall plan from 40 years ago, and you're like, wow, you wouldn't change very much in this book after 40 years, because it was right on target when he wrote it. Uh, and the same thing is going to be true of the moral animal. If you read the moral animal today, it's probably the best written comprehensive introduction to the thinking and evolutionary psychology that has yet been, you know, it's still the best thing that's been written for the intelligent layperson. So, uh, but uh, spent is the best thing you're ever going to see about how personality fits into this. And Jeffrey Miller's got a big sense of humor and a big brain and he's fun. So I'm going to, I'm going to look and see if that's on audible. Do you think yeah. that meeting Dr. Goldhammer 50 years ago kind of changed the trajectory of your life at all? Like in, at least in a dietary way, do you think? Oh you're... yeah. I mean, cause we, we, I, we, I was there when he was starting to figure out that maybe food was a very big deal. And so uh, it was actually my dad that put us onto it. So my, my dad was a very open character. And so he, uh, and he, he got into it and was interested in it because of listening to Jim Rohn. So Jim Rohn and Jim Rohn's seminars that my dad went to, Jim Rohn talked about diet being important. And he actually recommended Adele Davis, a book called, uh, you know, yeah, you know, Adele, I think that's right. I think that's her name, Adele Davis. Uh, a book called Let's Eat Right to Keep Fit. And so because my dad admired Jim Rohn, he went and got that book and read it and then got interested. And then he uh, then he read several books on nutrition. One of them was called Psychodietetics by Sharaskin and Ringsdorf, a couple of researchers out, out of Alabama, University of Alabama. And they were very big into hypoglycemia and the changes of, they, they basically said that schizophrenia and all these big, mental disorders are caused by basically hypoglycemia. So they make this way case. And, and I read that as a teenager because my dad you know, said that this is the gospel. And so then I went around ordering and explaining to everybody how disastrous sugar was and how terrible it was. And it turns out that, of course, Trasco's ring door didn't know very much. And they were way overplaying their hand. But I didn't know this. But I was, I was, a, I was a little proselytizing you know, uh, minister even then. And so, and so was Alan. As soon as Alan caught the wind of it, we were we were grandstanding to everybody in, in high school about how we were above it all and we weren't going to eat any anything with sugar in it. And um, so that's where it started. And uh, then then we went on a backpacking trip and half starved death because Alan didn't pack enough food. And all I was thinking about was food the whole time. And Alan was too. And he. Uh, I can remember a, t a talk we were having in that tent. So we were 16 years old and we were having this talk in this tent. And I was like, man, when we get back, I'm going to eat a pizza. Boy, I'm going to eat a whole pizza. I remember thinking that I just wanted to eat a pizza. And Alan had a very different reaction because he's a, Alan is very, uh, this is hyper-conscientiousness that sits inside of Alan uh, at another level past mine. And he was saying, you know, this food thing is a really big deal. 
that was the conversation. And he said, you know, this food thing, it's like what happened was that guy just found out he was vulnerable. And he had never thought about that vulnerability before in his life because he lived in a nice middle class home with nothing but food in that refrigerator with his Jewish mother. It's just like end to end food. You go over to the Goldhammer's house. You don't even know where to start. You just don't want to look like a greedy little kid from the other side of the tracks. You know what I mean? Who just wants to eat everything in the house. Because my parents were not very into food. So everything in my house was boring. You go over to Goldhammer's house. There's like 19 things that I want to eat. <laughs> okay. And so Alan was surrounded by food, as most Jewish kids are. And so the um, and so he had never felt even the slightest bit of vulnerability. And that night in the tent, he, that that hit him like, you know, like a George Foreman right hand, like, whoa, I'm vulnerable for God's sakes. And here we are out in the back country. And we're going to be scraping by for the next two, three days till we get home. We're in the middle of this loop. So when he got home, he be, became a fanatic about learning about food. And uh, because because of my dad's uh, interest in food and Jurassic and Ringdorf and the refined carbohydrates being this big evil, Alan decided he was going to go down. And that's when he pushed his way into a job at the New Moon Health Food Store. Uh, the, the guy didn't want to hire him, and Alan just started working. Didn't make any difference whether you were going to pay me or not. That's exactly what Alan did. Bizarre. What what sixteen year old kid does this? And by the way, he left high school to do it. He just walked out of high school and got in his car, went down to New Moon right in the middle of the day, and he <laughs> totally truant. Okay, like this is a uh, this is a, you start wondering about why I call some of these people freaks and why they wind up the way they are because they're not normal people aj's not normal people don't know aj i know aj i've been to her house i've talked to her for many years aj is not a normal human being <laughs> john mcdougall is not normal john mcdougall will fight with anybody and tell the entire medical profession that they're wrong right in an ame meeting in front of the thousand most prominent physicians in the world he would call them all down and argue one at a time until they're all till they all die on the stage he would nothing would give him more pleasure and alan goldhammer one night in a tent says wait a minute okay i'm finding out all about food and that's exactly what he did and so within two months he was managing the place for god's sakes he had just completely checked out high school. He he made up stories. He had got in, teachers to sign off on quote independent studies that he do it, you know, do a presentation at the end of the year. Like he just completely ran that thing. He ran his life like a casino and bluffing everybody all over the place. Meanwhile, he was down at New Moon fifty or sixty hours a week, being the manager of the New Moon Health Store. Because trust me. At 16, Alan Goldhammer had more, way more business mind than, you know, probably anybody in Long Beach. And so he, he rescued Newman and made it successful. And and the guy that, that walked in, a sweet guy named Andy that was running that thing, that was the owner, didn't even know what hit him. <laughs> Can you imagine? All, all you are is a little guy that that all you do is you have like, you know, a couple, three little horses that you and your kids ride around the track. And then who walks in? Secretariat walks into your to your paddock. It's like, 
what is that horse? Well, anyway, that's what happened. New Moon then expanded and then he sold out later, made a bunch of money. Why? Because Alan Goldhammer walked in his door uh, because he was interested in food. So that's the story as we go back half a century. And of course, that I never, you know, given my genetics and my naturally high cholesterol and and uh, my my love of chocolate and ch cheeseburgers and and jack in the box chocolate shakes and jack in the box crispy tacos that I had as a high school student, there's no doubt that I'd be in trouble by now. Okay, so uh, and so a Alan's determination to seek the truth and then to find it, which he had found within a couple of years. So he had read, by, by two years later, he had read every book in that health food store and there was a lot of them. And finally he had found um, Herbert Shelton was still on the shelf, you know, 50, 40 years later, the uh, Herbert Shelton was still there and Alan learned about fasting and he learned about Herbert Shelton and he found the Natural Hygiene Society. And he found out, oh, there's a little group of docs around the world doing this. And this is how they say we ought to be eating. And uh, then we find out later that John McDougall had come similarly, was close, and had the most definitive uh, uh, book uh, written on the on the science of, of nutrition, uh, you know, and what we ought to be doing when the McDougall plan comes out just a few years later. So within five years, we're reading the McDougall plan. Uh, that when Alan wrote the McDougal plan, he had been planning to write an updated version of of uh, Shelton. And Alan basically said, he called me up and he said, oh, I don't have we don't have to write a health book. OK, there's a guy at NMD that's written it. And that's how I heard the name John McDougal for the first time. That's a great story on so many levels. There's a Seinfeld episode where George Costanza goes to work, even though he, the guy didn't hire him. And that reminded me of that. And um, you you can have a strawberry shake now. I can't. I can't. I can have a strawberry shake. <laughs> and it's so good. Yeah. So good. It's better than any strawberry shake I ever had because it tastes healthy and you feel good when you're done. That's right, AJ. I can't, you know, I haven't done it yet, but. Yeah. Well, Dr. Lyle is one of the only people that have a recipe for my next. So guys. Oh man, I got the secret sauce. Right. You, you tasted it. So, but in general, do you think this idea of mentorship is a good idea for people? Well, actually a standard way of, uh, in, in business has always been that a young person goes and effectively apprentices. And, and so from watching somebody at close range that knows what they're doing, uh, you learn so many details that you can't, that you can't learn any other way. If you, if you just decided, Oh, I'm going to run a restaurant and, I'll hire consultants and, you know, I'm really into food. Yeah, you, you, you are now headed for failure. Okay. So what you really need to do is you need to go manage somebody else's restaurant for about a year. So you need to learn, you need to sit there and watch the thousand and one things that happen. That's how they train doctors. So you don't learn in medical school. What is it that you're going to do? That's a, you, that's just the, that's the theory. Then you go out there and you actually stare at a, Mrs. Johnson that has a bad kidney. And then you look at the labs and you can't believe how many times that a med student will say, oh, well, in school, they say such and such now. And the doctor says, yeah, but that's not what we're going to do. Okay. Because no, there's this consideration, that consideration, this patient, forget it. We're not doing it that way. And so this is, 
that this is the real the, the the truth about learning how to do anything is that it's quite a learning curve. Like, uh, yeah, AJ, I mean, when, when you look at all the little pieces that have co come to your career, there's been many pieces. So you're a Canadian, you know, you're a, you are a, um, a chef. You're a chef. You're an improv person. You're somebody that then learned all about not just being a chef, but nutrition and then plant-based nutrition. And then you had to go through your own metamorphosis. And then we we put that all together and we get truly a unique person and a unique career. And it didn't, it wasn't one thing. You know, so I'll have people say, yeah, I want to be like Chef AJ. It's like, oh, I want to be like Chef AJ. Where do we start? Okay. <laughs> Where do we start? We start, you get to get on the Johnny Carson show. You're going to test your chops in front of 20 million people. Like, you know, this is... There, there's a lot to things. And so, of course, looking for mentors and who you might pick to be learning from, those important things. I, I was, I didn't have anybody to learn from clinically, but uh, but I also, but I did learn some things clinically, in other words, by watching other people. And I also learned from, you know, learned from what I could. And I learned that people kind of didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> so I might as well do it my own way because there are, uh, there isn't really good instruction now. Now, for maybe very narrow things in psychology, there are. So, Dr. Laura Bruce has learned a great deal about how to train, uh, treat anxiety through very sophisticated application of cognitive behavioral therapy. She's much more sophisticated than than anybody that I ever learned from in in grad school. So the um, so you can you know it's not like all that clinical training is totally useless. But for so many things, you know, how how marriage and family therapists and couples therapists and relationship, how they are doing their work without knowing David Buss's work. Those people are like blind men trying to to fix a car. It's like, hey, you don't even know what you're looking at, for goodness sakes. So the uh, yeah, being mentors, you're, it's more about learning and sometimes uh, i will tell young people that they're like well you know how would i do this or do that and the answer is just go do anything even remotely similar to this you'll learn something including go learn something that oh well i think i want to i don't know operate a fashion thing one day really why don't you go work in a dentist's office as the billing clerk for a year because it's going to turn out you will learn things in that dentist's office working as the billing clerk that are going to be essential and important features of what you're going to do when you, you bring out your little fashion line. It's like that, that that's why I'm a very big believer in a diversity of experiences. And then somewhere in there of uh, what it, where it is that you're headed, you start, you start coalescing your dream and start moving in a direction that means something to you. So this is uh uh, so mentors, sometimes if somebody's doing exactly what you want to do, then if you can park yourself close to them, that's a good thing. I didn't have that. Alan, Alan sort didn't, Alan did have that. Alan got mentored by, uh, by, uh, the, the doctor in, uh, Dr. Alec Burton in Australia. So Alan went and looked at Burton's clinic and then mimicked it. So he got, Alan got his mentorship. Yeah.
Well, I think of at least when it comes to nutrition and weight loss, I think of you and Dr. Goldhammer and Dr. McDougall as as my mentors. But I agree with you. Like, I, I don't know if you know this, that after college, I became a respiratory therapist. And if I had spent a day watching what they really do, that job was not a good fit for me, especially right. with the ICU and the intubations and watching. I mean, like, you know, we had to like sometimes be in the operating room when they were doing open heart surgery. Like if I had, because I'm, I'm kind of a squeamish, sensitive person. If I had known really what the job was, yes. I think I would have ever gone to respiratory therapy school for two years because- it's just, you know, doing blood gases. It was, that's, I'm not, that's not a job for me. You know what, AJ? And and that is a, that is a great story. I forgot about that. And that, and also one more piece of that is you were close to the medical world. You saw people struggling. In other words, that's a tiny little piece that made you more open-minded towards learning that there was a very graphically different way of approaching health and medical problems and got you more motivated about that. So that was a piece of your story. And so the uh, uh, I'll run into people that are 30, 35, 28 years old, and they've gone down a road for an education and they really don't like what they're doing. And my attitude is, well, for God's sakes, you know, take very seriously change uh, because very often your, your career or what you do has to be zigzagged. And very often you can always circle back and go back to what, if you don't like selling insurance, you know, but you're making a pretty good living at it, that, you know, gee, it seems like a solid thing to do. Careful. You know, if you're, if you're, if if you're not enjoying the process a lot, then look carefully towards something that you're getting pulled toward and see if there's some way to make a living while you learn what you're doing. Uh, John Wooden has a saying, uh, don't don't get be so be so busy making a living that you forget to make a life. And so one of the things that happens in in my practice is every now and then I help somebody kick themselves out of the career trajectory that they're on because they're playing life too safe. Uh, and you know you could be stupid about things, but people a lot of times play this way too safe in the sense that you know you've only got one life to live for goodness sakes. Don't. You know, had, had Chef AJ stayed, some relative said, well, that's a really secure thing, AJ. You know, you better do that. It's like, wow, what the world and AJ would have missed uh, by not exploring, you know, the adjacent possible. Yeah. Well, I remember in, in 1982, it, $12 an hour was pretty good. Yes. Oh. But, you know, and the one thing I learned from being a respiratory therapist is really don't smoke because, you know, the people with emphysema and lung cancer, I mean, there's just not a lot of hope there um, for their recovery. And they struggled so much. But what was interesting, Dr. Lyle, is over 40 years ago, how many respiratory therapists and pulmonary doctors actually smoked? (laughs) Yeah. That was so weird. But anyway. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad I'm not that. I just, yeah. anyway. next question from Julie, Dr. Lyle, which type of diet is the most effective for an individual with schizophrenia affective disorder? Dr. Chris Palmer has had success with a keto Atkins type diet. Do you have any knowledge or experience with this disorder and nutrition? And I looked up Chris Palmer and what it says about him is that he is a psychiatrist who uses the ketogenic diet as an effective treatment for mental illness. Yeah, it's unlikely that he's effective. Uh, just because somebody says they're effective uh, doesn't mean they're effective. And so the um, it, it would be 
think I saw something about that. Somebody actually did a little bit of research and and um, th this is this is an example of uh, I've tried uh, I, I can tell you what this harkens back to. Shraskin and Ringsdorf, right after what I was telling you out of the University of Alabama, the, the research that the psychodietetics. So we're, we're going back now 50 years to psychodietetics uh, and the notion that that essentially blood sugar perturbations is causing, quote, psychotic you know, episodes. Uh, and so th this is what got my dad all interested and it started, you know, got, got this whole ball rolling for Alan and I. So how impressed are we with this? Because the, 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 so could it be true that you could, for some people who are eating really bad diets, uh, if you, if you pull some, uh, some refined carbohydrates out of the diet and you stabilize blood sugar levels, whether you could, could reduce some volatility in, in their, uh, psycho, uh, their emotional life. Yeah, that, that's no shock. The who the hell needs keto? Okay, so a, a, a baked potato will do the same thing for God's sakes. So and Chris, whoever he is, doesn't know this. So the, um, the there's no there's no I, I would find it be extremely unlikely that a ketogenic diet uh, would be doing something fancy for the essentially the mental stability of of unstable people. Doesn't make any sense at all. So, I, uh, whereas a, a diet that takes us away from unnecessary blood sugar turbulence, uh, it, that's something different. And not to mention, we're very likely to be misdiagnosing people all over the place. So there are people who are true hypoglycemics, and they can be pretty turbulent in terms of their emotional lives. And if you do something that stabilizes that, they do better. But if you start talking about schizophrenics uh, and you start thinking that your keto diet is helping them, good luck. Okay, so uh, I don't, so anyway, what do I think about this? I think the basic concept is bogus uh, because I don't think that there's going to be any profit in the keto diet versus, uh, and it's probably not going to be as good as a diet that's healthy. Okay, so did Chris so-and-so test this against the McDougal diet? No, he didn't. I guarantee he did not do that, okay? So what they did was they tested it against some cockamamie control or they didn't test it at all. It's just something that they're touting, uh, something that the great doctor, you know, is piggybacking on the popularity of Atkins and as a weight loss gimmick and thinking that, hey, look at how great this is. So anyway, I don't know what the hell this guy's saying, but I'm not impressed. Yeah, and, and also, like you say, compared to what? What did they yeah. like? You know, I mean, did they take somebody on Dr. McDougall's diet or Dr. Goldhammer's diet that had this disorder and then switch them to keto and they got better? That's what I'd like to know. Of course. And the answer is, of course, they didn't do anything even remotely similar. That's right. Sorry, but the doctor that did this could believe in their own medicine because they could have seen people on really lousy diets with hypoglycemic type conditions exasperating uh, their symptoms. And then switch them to a diet that reduced that turbulence, and then they could they think they found the holy grail. Okay, so uh, that that's probably what has happened with this doc. And uh, from from where we sit, we're utterly unimpressed, but not necessarily surprised that that's the way they're thinking. Right. Uh, you're not going to fix 
major mental disorder with food. Never going to happen. Okay. And anybody that thinks so doesn't understand what is driving major mental disorder. What's driving major mental disorder is not a single neurotransmitter or some little ketogenic process or not process. No, what's driving it is thousands and thousands of little errors in the genes. Basically, a bunch of bad genes as a mosaic have put together a, a brain that has a lot, a lot of characteristic malfunction. And so there's no one fix, you know, you know, for 50 years, psychiatrists tried to sell us the dopamine hypothesis, that there's something, this is what's wrong. And therefore, if we use some drug that blocks that problem, that we're going to fix it. Not a chance. Zero. Okay. Uh, that, that is like saying we've got a, a falling down house that was put together by the, the sloppy piglet who, you know, made it out of straw. And we're going to put some 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 bricks, you know, around the uh, around the base of it and shore up the foundation. You're not going to do anything of the kind. The entire thing is made out of straw, and the only way to build it better is to, you know, bas basically you can't, you you can't fix it. The, the whole thing has to come down, and you have to rebuild it in brick. So that that's called a different human being with a different brain with different genes that build the different structures. So that is. Uh, the, the idea that schizophrenia or manic depressive psychosis or anything like this, that any of these things are the result of a single neurotransmitter disruption and a single uh, chain is a pipe dream. And it, at this point, it's a lie. 30 years ago, it wasn't a lie. It was a hypothesis and it was wishful thinking. Okay. Now we realize, oh no, it's nothing of the kind. It's, it's wholesale disruption in the genetic code. And therefore, you're you're not you're not. It's like taking a barely functioning jalopy out of a out of a demolition derby junk pile that can still turn on, and it rattles and everything about it, and smoke comes out of it, and the windshield wipers don't work, and the tires are falling off, and everything about this thing is a mess. And you say, "Oh no, it's not a problem. We just put on a new distributor cap." Like, no, that is not the problem. There's 400 problems and you're not, you know, if you fix them one by one, you got a brand new car. That's a whole different thing. All right. On we go. Thank you, Dr. Lyle. This next question from Melanie. I'm really interested because I had an experience about this subject. And she says, Dr. Lyle, what exactly is luck? And why do certain people seem to have quite a bit of good luck throughout their lives and other people bad luck? Is there anything we can do that will make us luckier in life? Can thinking good thoughts or believing we will be lucky help? I have a colleague who has been an Eeyore and literally says, nothing good ever happens to me, and it doesn't. Is there such a thing as a self-fulfilling prophecy? And the only reason I say this is I was recently at Rancho La Puerta, and this lady uh, was giving a demonstration on luggage, high-end luggage that costs $350 a piece. My, my luggage costs $50 at Ross Dress for Less and teaching us how to pack efficiently. And she did a drawing for a piece of it. And I, I mean, I just basically said, I got to win this. I, I mean, I really believed I was going to win and I did. I, really, I, I mean, I really did win it. And, you know, I, I mean, because I really wanted it and I just kept thinking, I'm going to win, I'm going to win. And I did win. Yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, actually, <laughs> uh, there... 
the way the way this works is as follows, and this is the correct way to understand luck. And that is that um, uh, th there are there there's lucky. Uh, well, let, let's let's explain. Life is essentially a, a massive casino. So you, you walk into this casino, uh, you walk in this thing, and you're never going to leave it. And all through this casino, it's like the biggest casino you've ever seen. And there's poker tables. And there's little groups of people at these poker tables, like six or eight of them all sitting down and they're just playing poker with their chips all day long. Okay. And that's what they do. They just play poker and they get hand after hand after hand dealt to them. Okay. And every once in a while, you hear somebody groaning because uh, they lost a big pot. And then every now and then you hear somebody shouting and excitement because they won a big pot. And that's what's going on in this den in this casino. And there's thousands of people there. And, you know, there's people coming by with, with, with food and you can eat food and drink and then you just sit down, go to the bathroom and you come back and you play a casino and you just keep playing. That's what your life is. That's that's what this thing is. That's life. It's life for a mosquito. It's life for a chimpanzee and it's life for a human being. It's a casino. And in that casino, good things are happening and bad things are happening thing, and expected things are happening and unexpected things are happening. Like there's just no telling. Okay. But one thing we know is that some people play better than others. And something else that we know, that some people play well, but they bitch about it. In other words, they feel like they've been treated unfairly and, and luck has not smiled on them. Okay, So the truth is, is that there isn't such thing as good luck and bad luck. What there are is personalities that, that feel fortunate and have gratitude for their situation. And there's personalities that are, will bitch all the way to their grave. <laughs> and that's what you're watching, okay? The person that is complaining all the way to the grave has had just as good a luck over the 100,000 poker hands that they have that has been dealt to them. Every day is a new day. Every hour is a new hour. And you have, you know, unbelievable amount of time in this life. If you want to talk about lucky, if we go back and look at statistics from, say, 1600 or 1700, I've got these. If we go back there, we'll find out that only about 10% of people were alive by the age of 40. Okay, 60, 70% of people are dead by their 25th birthday. Like life was short. Okay, oh, one in a one in a hundred people was living to their 70th birthday. That's what was happening just a couple centuries ago. In England, most sophisticated society in the world. 99% of the people by age 70 are dead. You start seeing why, why, why it's been human tradition to have respect for your elders. Not only have they lived longer and seen more than anybody else and have a lot of amassed knowledge, but they're also pretty smart people, okay? Pretty good specimens that made an awful lot of good decisions because the truth is almost everybody else of their peers was gone by their 50th birthday. Now, so you're like, well, things have been tough on me. They've had really bad luck. Really? You're an American living in the 21st century who's granted 80 years of life unless something really unfortunate happens to you. If you don't self-destruct, you're probably going to live at least to 80. And in that 80th birthday, you're probably going to be in pretty good shape financially. You're going to be in comfortable circumstances, not too hot, not too cold, air conditioning and heating. 
You're going to have unbelievable, you know, billions and billions of dollars of entertainment put on your TV screen for a few dollars a month. You have the music of Mozart to, to you know, the Carpenters at your fingertips for basically for free. Put, put it on, you know, some streaming service for $99.99 a month. Are you kidding me? How lucky can you get? Okay, you know, I've never had anything other than an apple and squash in my life. Well, it seems to me like you must be living in 15th century Italy in some little village somewhere because you don't have a lot of choices. But as an American or a Western democracy, I, I can go in five minutes. I've got 45 cooks cooking 19 different cuisines ready to serve me at any moment of the day. You've got to be kidding me. Okay. So this, uh, you have an automobile in 1910, good chance you're going to die in it. That thing is a rickety, dangerous thing without any brakes that work, no signaling. You know, the, there were punctures on the tires every three miles that you have to get out and learn how to fix. It's like, come on, people. We are unbelievably fortunate. Now, I'll complain about how I think ought to be better and evil people that are trying to steal from us all and make it worse. I got plenty to say about that, okay? We all do. But the but the point is, is that when you look at our overall circumstances, wow, what an incredible time to be alive. Okay. I worked uh, with a woman who was an expert on water, and she worked mostly out of Africa. And she told me that she would... She would work inside of massive garbage dumps in Africa, in the Sudan, I forget, whatever it was. And these people lived in garbage dumps their whole lives. That's where they lived. Okay. I've never forgotten that image. This was a PhD and some fancy, you know, whatever the heck it was. But the point is, is that talking to her and she spent a lot of time there so don't think that when she flew back to the to the west and spent you know a year behind a desk giving her reports and so forth that she didn't appreciate the tap turning on and beautiful clean water now we know poisoned by fluoride so be careful make sure you get fluoride out of your own water but the point is is that unbelievable what we have so the people that have quote bad luck they don't have bad luck. They've had extraordinarily good luck, okay? And they're, they're not appreciating it, but part of that is that they're born with disagreeable chips that basically are wanting to lean on other people and complain in order to extract resources, okay? This is a strategy that exists inside of human nature. There's always somebody that's whining and bitching about how things have not been fair, okay? Now, if you're in a situation where you are complaining and upset, feel like you've been treated unfairly, and you want to talk to somebody about it, I'm always happy when I talk to people in my practice, lots a lot of times where they're at, and that's not their personality. That's just a situation that they're in. That's a situation. That's reasonable. That's going to happen. But they're not chronically there. They're not there for 30 years. So the questioner on this is asking, you know, how do you have good luck? And the answer is, you got plenty of good luck. We've all had unbelievably good luck. Okay. So you always want more. You always want to make sure, you know, I'd like to live longer, live long, continue to prosper. You know, I'd like to be like Mr. Spock and live 127 years, whatever the heck it is. 
But the truth of the matter is, is that probably the best luck comes from having an appreciation of history and have an appreciation of how life used to be and how much better life is now for you if you seize the day and make the most of it. Okay. Your uh, that's what you need when when you're complaining about how unfairly you've been treated at your work. Think about what it was like in a company town in a coal mine in Philadelphia in 1942. Okay, where you couldn't get out of that town. You know, we're making you know 38 cents an hour, and you have to pay the big prices that the that the that the uh, that the essentially monopolistic landlord that owns your job and owns your house and owns the food store where you have to buy your food. And you have no car and you can't pack up and get ahead financially and get out of there and get to Pittsburgh. Okay. You're just some little person. You're, you don't have great ability. You're just an average human being. And you're going to live there in that little company town yeah, with the little, tiny little uh, opportunities. Wow. That wasn't long ago. So if you're complaining about your situation, look hard. All usually what's all that's required is hard, some hard work and some sacrifice to get out of it. Okay. Pay the price. Uh anybody that is in the middle of Cambodia would trade their situation for your situation in one second. Okay. So yeah, bad luck. Not interested in hearing anybody's bad luck. Okay. You got a bad luck in a given situation and you're retrenching and you got to pay some prices because something went wrong for you. Fair enough. I'll be plotting for you how to best get our way out of this. But you telling me about how you per se have bad luck? No, you don't. Okay. You have, you, you are a inherent complainer. Okay. And <laughs> that's how it is. Dr. Lyle, I once. Now I know who you are. I once heard that there's no such thing as luck, that the definition of luck is preparation meets opportunity. Said, said by the, that, that could have come out of Alan Goldmember's mouth, said by a high conscientious, high energy person who, quote, made a lot of their own good luck. And of course, that's, of course, that's true. There is such thing as luck happens and it matters. You know, I feel very lucky for many things that have happened in my life. I feel lucky that my dad, when you really think about this, was open enough. Uh, my dad was an adventurer, and he was open enough to go listen to Jim Rohn. Fantastic, okay? He listens to Jim Rohn. Jim Rohn talks about diet. My dad is like, well, we ought to learn about that. So then he learns that, and then we learn that, and then Alan gets curious on a backpacking trip, and the rest is history. Unbelievable. That was good luck. I, I might have had... I don't know that I ever would have understood anything about nutrition and health. And, you know, my life would have been significantly worse as a result of that. Okay. So is there luck? You bet there's luck. But there's good luck, bad luck. But in the end of the day, that does that isn't what matters. What matters is what you do with what it is that you, you know, the opportunities that you go seek and make. Yeah, well, I love Jim Rohn, and if ever I feel slightly down in the dumps, I listen to him. I just love his voice, you know? I know. Me too. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So do you have time for one more question? I have time for one more. Okay. This one, I, I, I have a feeling you're going to, but anyway. Uh, Claire wants to know what you think of breath work. Breath work. Well, I, I don't even know what to say about that. In other words, there's people that 
do deep, deep breathing and they helps them relax. And so this can be beneficial for people just to put them in a really nice state uh, to reduce their anxiety and so on and so forth. Um, breath work per se for human beings, for some global thing that is supposed to be good for their health or psychology is nonsense. In other words, I don't do any breath work. I don't need any breath work. If I did breath work, it wouldn't do me any good. I, I'm not a person that carries much anxiety. Okay, so uh, Alan do, doesn't either. So a Alan Goldhammer doesn't carry any anxiety. That doesn't mean that this can't be really valuable for some people that do. And it could be very, very helpful for them. And they could sort of learn how to induce some endorphins and i.e. meditative type of uh, type of effect. So, uh, so yeah, how I think about a lot of those things has to do with, um, it, it has to do with you specifically. Uh, but when, when people start telling me, for example, that transcendental meditation is this great health benefit thing, it's like, no, it's not, for God's sakes. The, uh, if I, if I did TM, it would help me one scrap. But I happen to be an individual, like a lot of people, that don't, don't have a lot of buzzing anxiety that goes inside my head. Somebody else that might help. Somebody that has a lot of buzzing anxiety might not be able to do it because it just winds up not being something that their mind is conducive to do. So the point is, what do I think of breath work, meditation, all that kind of stuff? My colleague, Jen Hawk, absolutely meditates. It's good for her. She she it, it, it is helpful for her. And she says, oh, without a doubt, you know, I'm going to do that every day for 20 minutes or whatever it is. So these are individual difference variables. Uh, it's like, hey, do you love to play pickleball? And if you're AJ, the answer is yes. If you're Rip Asselstyn, you are a fanatic about pickleball. <laughs> OK, so for me, that's eh, all right. You know, sorry, everybody. I'm going to go shoot baskets. So go find something that fits well for you. I love the music of George Winston. I love George Winston's music. Okay. And I, oh, there's going to be, if you love George Winston, do you know that um, I, I believe I have the same birthday as him? I'm going to look it up. But no, I really did. I know what I know what a fan you are of astrology. Uh, but, but, and Marcel Marceau and William Shatner, too. Oh. So some really cool people. But if you yeah. like George Winston, I think you will like a local Sacramento guy named Gregory Porter. I'm not kidding. I think you will love him if you like George. If you like that jazz kind of. Yeah. 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 And there, there's people that 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 don't particularly like George Winston. And of course, I'm thinking, what's the matter with you? You know what I mean? So this is uh, this is just uh, human nature. These are the individual differences. And you, we we. Find your best sauce. I have seen George Winston in concert and he's fabulous. You know, do you think that people that don't have any anxiety like Dr. Goldhammer and yourself, well, you're a psychologist, so it's different, have little understanding or compassion for those who do? Well, I don't know, F. Allen, I'm not sure there's compassion in there because I'm not actually sure he's alive. It's highly, it's highly, we're very suspicious that that could be an alien robot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I certainly have compassion for people's anxiety. In other words, I understand it. I've certainly had anxiety, anxious producing moments and situations in my life when I was having a lot of concern and my basically my mind was working pretty hard at a problem because there was potential serious losses. So I certainly understand uh, what it what it means to be anxious. And I certainly understand that somebody could be could have 10 times as much as that as I do. Okay, so, uh, and so that they could, that they could have an awful lot of anxiety and I understand that. 
um, I, I can only be so helpful. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm no master of helping people with anxiety. I've got some things that are useful uh, for some people with anxiety, with whatever that anxiety is. Uh, but to me, the, the, the master of anxiety is Laura Bruce. That, that is, uh, uh, that, that is, that is the person that if you're suffering a lot and you have the means, uh, that, that's, that's a lady worth talking to because that she can maybe help you dial your average, average of eight down to a six. And that could be, you know, she's not going to tell you, you're not going to get rid of it. You can forget about that. that. That's the amount that you have is essentially genetic, uh, that, that if you, she can teach you how to get from an eight to a six, that could be a much better life. Right. So no ketogenic diet for anxiety then. No. Did you meet George Winston, the pianist, or George Benson, the singer? No, no. I actually like them both, but George Winston. Okay. George Winston, uh, and he did so many things that are so amazing, obviously. He's a totally unique artist. But uh, something that will make me always feel real. I mean, there's many of his pieces, but one of them was uh, when he plays a piece by Bach called Joy, uh, which is a... Which is an extraordinary, you know, rendition uh, that that just if you don't feel optimistic and happy and gratitude, you could just feel in that composition. Uh, Bach's gratitude. Uh, Bach was obviously, uh, as as every learned person was deeply religious in the 1700s. Uh, Bach was a deeply religious man and uh, was was doing his best work for God and boy, does it come across in, in that composition. And George Winston does a, one of the beautiful renditions of that. I can never get enough of it. Well, as soon as we get off the air, I'm going to ask, you know, the lady L L E A L E X, you know, her if yes. I speak, she'll, to play it. Well, Dr. Lyle, this was really very fun. Thank you so much. My great, my great pleasure, AJ. And we'll see you all soon. All right. Thanks, everyone, for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at 10 a.m. Pacific time for Kathy Hester. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.